Hey, uh, men's retreat, you can still sign up uh, for the next couple of weeks, but we really need you to sign up soon so that we can make plans. Uh, in addition, today's the last day you can sign up for Shanae's Grow Workshops. So we are in week two of a... Oh, some of you are wondering where's Scott Shaw? We told you that we had a guest visitor coming to preach today. We found out on Friday. Due to health reasons, they weren't going to be able to make it. So he's going to come in a couple weeks. So um, I'm filling in instead. Um, I work here. I'm one of the pastors here, so it works out okay. So we're in week two of the series we're calling Essentials. And what we're doing is we are talking about how do we grow as followers of Christ, right? So the question is, um, how do we live into the mission at Grace of becoming more and more like Jesus? At Grace, we kind of have a map or a strategy, if you will, to uh, help you to live into this and to, to work that out. We call it the six essentials. And what I'm going to do for just a minute is I'm going to walk through the six essentials like I did last week just because I want them to be uh, fresh on your mind. But the first of the six essentials is that you gather. You're actually doing it right now, that you come on Sundays. And we know that it's important to come on Sundays. There's something that happens in the context of corporate worship that can't be replicated or duplicated anywhere else. So whether this is your church or you're visiting, you need to have a church and you need to be faithful to going to church regularly, more than once a month. You need to be there when, when church is happening because God uses that to grow you. The other thing we know is that you need to connect with other people beyond Sunday morning. If this is all you have, it's not enough. God has designed you to be in relationship with other people. God has designed you to, to live out the scriptures with one another in a, in a context of a small group. You should be mentoring somebody. Somebody should be mentoring you. You should have accountability relationships, but you need that. You need to be connected, and you need to serve. Every person in this room is called to serve. If you go to grace, the expectation is that you are serving somewhere because God has made you to do good works and so you need to live into those good works, and that'll be part of your spiritual growth. So this is what we call the outer essentials. We call them the outer essentials because we need to do them together. You can't do them by yourself. You, you can serve yourself, but that's not what we're after here. We want you to serve other people. We want you to gather together. We want you to connect with other people. Outer essentials, and then we have what we call the inner essentials, which are um, that we are people of influence. That means that we uh, give our lives away, that we understand that God has given us this precious gift in his son Christ, and we're sharing it with other people, that you are light in a dark world, uh, that you are a person of devotion, not that you have devotions, but that your heart is fully devoted to God, and we're going to talk about that quite a bit today. And lastly, of the six essentials is generosity. When we talk about generosity, we're not just talking about money, we're talking about all of your time, your treasures, your talent, everything you have being put in play to advance the kingdom of God. Those are the six essentials. And when you look at the diagram and you see those arrows, what we're trying to communicate in the arrows is that these things all work together. There's a flow, if you will, that go with the six essentials. So uh, the best way I can say it is imagine if you are connected in a small group, suddenly Sunday becomes even better. The gathering becomes better. If you're in a place where you're serving, then you are making better connections. And when you're making better connections, then Sunday's even better. As your heart is fully devoted to God, Sunday becomes richer. As a matter of fact, as you are a person of influence, you're sharing your faith with other people and you're inviting them to come to grace and to grow in their faith to be disciples, all of a sudden Sunday is going to be richer because you're going to be sharing it with somebody that you're mentoring. So there's this, if you will, a perfect storm that happens when we are engaged in all six of the essentials. Each one helps to make the other one stronger. Another thing I want you to see is if you look at this diagram, right smack in the middle is this word devotion. Devotion is literally the heart of all this. Devotion is the key to all of the other five essentials. 
the bottom line is spiritual growth is a God thing. That, that we can't grow spiritually without God being at work in our lives. And, and, and having this heart of devotion is kind of what unlocks the movement of God in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Second Chronicles 2, or Second Chronicles 16, 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support, to show himself strong to those whose hearts are blameless or fully committed or fully devoted toward him. I'm going to come back to this verse in just a couple minutes. Um, this is really what we're going to talk about for the duration of the day, but just a couple quick observations from that passage. God is looking to show himself strong. Think about it. God is actually looking. It says his, his eyes are searching the whole earth. God is actually looking for people whose hearts are devoted to him so that he can show himself strong on their behalf. That ought to be an incredibly encouraging word for you this morning. God is searching, God is looking for hearts that are devoted to him so that he can show himself strong. This morning we're going to answer two important questions. So what is a fully devoted heart? That's the first question we're going to answer. And we're also going to ask the question, or answer the question, how does this fully devoted heart thing, how does it actually happen? And before I do that, I'm going to pray. Lord, I just pray for this morning, I pray for this message, I pray for the words that I speak. I uh, pray that they would take root. Um, anything that's of your spirit would just land in fertile soil, that it would germinate, that it would grow, and that it would bear fruit in the lives of the people here. We pray that people would leave different than they came because they interacted with the living God uh, in this place. Help us to be the church you've called us to be at Morassa 994 and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so to answer these two questions, what is, what is a fully devoted heart and, and how does this happen? We're going to go back and we're going to unpack Second Chronicles 16 in context. So if you grab your Bibles and turn to Second Chronicles 16, if you're reaching under your seat and you pull out your Bible, the first thing you'll notice is it's not blue anymore, it's red. We have new Bibles. Isn't that cool? So we are now teaching from the English Standard Version, and we wanted to make sure that the Bibles under the seat match what we're teaching from. So if you're using that Bible, um, we are on page 369. So turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 16. I want to encourage you to bring your own Bibles. If you have a Bible that you study at home, I want to encourage you to take notes. There's space in the bulletin on the back to do that. I encourage you to check in on social media. If you want to, want to take out your phone right now and plop into social media and just check in at Grace, that's great. Use Twitter, use Instagram. Uh, somebody's first service took a picture of the screen and put a little note with it and sent it out on uh, Facebook. That's great. We love that. We want to tell people we're learning about truth at Grace Community Church. Okay, so a little bit of context before I read 2 Chronicles 16. Um, so at this point in history, there are 12 tribes of Israel, but the, the northern 10 tribes have become their own country. They've become this, this land called Israel, and the southern two tribes are, are known as Judah. So they've, they've divided, and these two groups or these two uh, uh, countries are often battling with one another. As you read through the scripture, they're off, often at war with one another. And what we have to recognize is they're cousins, right? They're all family. They're all part of God's people. But you have the northern group of Israel, and you have the southern group of Judah, and now they're at war with one another. In this particular case, the northern ten tribes, which is the much larger, much more uh, militarily powerful tribes, um, are laying siege against Judah. You know what that means? It means that they have kind of set up a blockade. They have, they have fortified the area so that nobody can come and nobody can go from Judah, okay? So that's kind of the setting that we're in. And there's a king, his name is Asa, and he's the king of those, that smaller um, country called Judah, the, the lower two, 
or the, the other two tribes, okay? So there's King Asa, and, and this, this army is, is laying siege against him, and King Judah is over, or King Asa is overwhelmed. He's stressed. He's, he, he's almost panicky, if you will. And so what he does is he goes into the temple, and he takes the treasury in the temple, the things that people have donated to God. He takes those treasures, and he sends them to the king of Syria. And he says to the king of Syria, basically, I'm going to buy your protection. Would you protect me the way we did in the past? Here's the, the, the loot. Would you take this and would you protect us? And the king of Syria says, sure. So he takes the wealth and he comes and he attacks Israel, right? So you're following with me. And when he attacks Israel, then the, the, the country of Israel has to stop the siege against Judah and they have to go and defend their own land. So at the moment, it seems as though Asa, King Asa is brilliant. He saves his people, right? This, there's this huge army that's amassing against him, and, and he does what he needs to do. And, and it looks like, for all intents and purposes, Ace is brilliant, and he does the right thing. But that's not where the story ends, and we're going to pick it up right at this point. So Second Chronicles 16, starting in verse 7. So it's after all of those events that I just talked about, okay? So at that time, Hananiah the seer, or prophet, came to Asa, the king of Judah, and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria, this pagan king, and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Don't miss that. In other words, God was actually going to give the king of Syria into his hands, but now the king of Syria has escaped you. He says, were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army and very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because you relied on the Lord, he gave them into your hand. Now the passage that I already read, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless, whose hearts are fully committed, whose hearts are fully devoted towards him. You have done a foolish thing, and from now on, you will have wars. So this prophet does a very brave thing, right? For a prophet to go to the king and call the king out was really putting their own neck on the line, endangering their own physical safety. And so he goes to the king, and he says, you may think you did the right thing. You may think that things are better, but in fact, Asa, man, you really messed up. You've really made a, a mess of things. And, and then he says to him, he says, don't you remember what happened last time? And he reminds him of recent history. So look at verse 8. He says, were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army of many chariots and horsemen? So to under, understand that whole story, we've got to take a, and turn back a little bit. So keep your Bibles open in Second Chronicles and go back to chapter 14. And what I'm going to do is just going to show you a couple things that we need to see about the history of King Asa and what's going on. So 2 Chronicles 14, verse 2. This is right after Asa has become the king. He's, he's just getting established in his kingship. And it says, And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. When I was reading this morning and going through my sermon, I just read that and I just thought to myself, that's what I want to be said of me. That Doug did what was right in the eyes. Don't you want, like, in the end of your life to look back and have God say, you did what was right in my eyes. Isn't that what we all want? Yes, it is what we all want. Yes, Doug, it is what we all want. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord is God. Verse 3, he took away the foreign altars, the high places. He broke down the pillars. He cut down the ashram and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandments. So the first thing I want you to see is that Asa starts out really well. He starts out pursuing God. He starts out with this heart fully devoted to God. As a matter of fact, if you go back and you read through the Chronicles, if you read through the first and second Kings, there's very few kings that this is said of them, that they did what is right in the eyes of the Lord. 
So he's, he's really, he's doing the right things. Not only is he doing the right things, but he's instructing the people to do the right thing as well. He starts out so well. And while he's doing all this, he assembles in this small little country of Judah, he assembles an army of 500,000 men, a powerful army for as small as the country is. But look at verse 9. It says, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. Now we're talking about ancient days. We're talking about hand-to-hand combat, 500 against 1 million. Not good odds if you're talking about hand-to-hand combat. So he's, he's outnumbered. He's outpowered. Even the reference to the chariots is just saying, look, they are, they're, they're way outmanned and, and outgunned in this case. So in verse 10, it says, as Asa went out to meet him, and they drew their lines of battle in the valley of Zepethus and Merisha. And then here's the key, verse 11. It's, it's the key. It says, And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and and the Ethiopians fled. Asa, in this case, was willing to humble himself and cry out for help. He actually says, I am weak, but you are strong. He says, look, we can't do this on on our own. We are outgunned. We are outnumbered. We desperately need your help. He understands how desperate he is for God. So he cries out to God for help. The other thing that we sometimes take for granted, he still goes into battle. It's such a a picture of faith. Imagine 500,000 against a million. This is like life or death stuff, but he still goes, but he has enough faith to believe that God has his back, that God is going to go before him, and that God is going to bring him victory in this in this situation, it says, So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa. Who defeated the Ethiopians? The Lord. And it's capital L-O-R-D. Remember what we learned when we went through Jonah? L-O-R-D means it's the word Yahweh. So the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the Lord does this, and the Lord gets credit for this. It's an incredible victory that God gets the credit for. So then a couple decades passed, probably 20 to 25 years. And what happens after this, because he relied on the Lord, if you go back and you look, it actually says, so there was peace in the land. Because he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, God brought peace to the land of Judah. For 20 years, they lived in prosperity and they lived in, in peace. And something happens during that 20 years. Asa slips into this, this lull or this, this sense of false security. He somehow takes his eyes off of God. He forgets who his provider is. Asa actually comes to the place where he believes he is his own provider. He forgets that everything he has is from the hands of God. So then trouble comes the second time, and and the land of Israel masses against him and sieges the country, and, and he doesn't even turn to God this time. This is a common problem. God blesses Asa, and in his blessing, he forgets who God is. And we are all prone to this same problem. When God pours out his blessing on us, it's easy for us to accept the blessing and over time forget who the blessing came from. We forget how desperate we are for God. When God is blessing us, we think we got it all going on, and we actually begin to believe that we are our own provider. So the question we're asking this morning is, what is a fully devoted heart? And we can see from the story that a fully devoted heart is a heart that's aligned 
and focused on God. Devotion is a feeling of strong love and loyalty. Let me say that again. Devotion is a feeling of strong love and loyalty. And your actions, your behavior will give you a clear indicator of what you are devoted to. What you make time for, what you actually carve out and make time for in your life is what you're devoted to. So you can say, I am devoted to God, but if you have no time for God during the week, then your action betray your words. What you are loyal to is what you are going to give your time and your energy to. It's that strong love, that loyalty. Devotion is a heart that is humble enough to know that if God doesn't do it, nothing else matters. It's not going to get done. It's, it's having this constant awareness of God that Zechariah talks about when he says, not by might, not by power, not anything I can do on my own, he's saying, but by the Spirit. We've got to remember our desperate need for God. God must show up strong on our behalf. So Jesus uses these words. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Nada. Zilch. That means you can't be a good parent without the Spirit of God at work in your life. It means you can't be a good husband or a good wife without the Spirit of God at work in your life. You know what it means? It means you can't be a good coworker. It means you can't be a good boss. It means you can't be a good friend without the Spirit. Because nothing. You can't do anything. Here's the deal. You cannot be a good voter. Think about it. You cannot be a good voter without the Spirit of God at work in your life. You can do nothing without God's work in your life. King Asa, he takes matters into his own hands. He does everything in his own strength. He uses his own ingenuity, his own creativity. He forgets to even lean into God. We don't see any education that he even asks God what he's supposed to do. He just takes matters into his own hand. And he brings disaster, he brings chaos into the land. From this day forward, you will be at war. Here's the application. When we become self-reliant, we invite chaos into our lives. When we become self-reliant, we invite chaos into our lives. We might think that what we're going to do is going to make things better, but it makes things worse. Abortion is a painful example of this. It may seem like a solution to take care of the problem, but the pain that comes to all of the parties that vote over the long haul is way worse than the alternative that God may have for you. Sex outside of marriage. It may seem like a good thing at the time, but it brings devastation to relationships, and it brings chaos into your lives. What is a fully devoted heart? It's a heart that is fully committed, fully dependent, fully, completely God's. And here's the hard part. None of us have one. Hard as it is to hear, this idea of a heart fully devoted to God is a lifetime journey. We learn to be more and more dependent and fully devoted to God. We also live in a, in a system of grace, and God forgives, and God moves in our lives. But he's saying, would you, would you be fully devoted to me? Just like King Asa. Sometimes we forget how desperate we are for God, and we take matters into our own hands. We do things our own way. We forget to earnestly seek God. But he says, draw near to me. 
God says, no, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Don't miss this. Devotion is not about perfection. It's about motion. Define the word motion on the screen. It's an act or a process of moving or changing. It's an impulse, an inclination of the mind or the will. It's about movement towards God. Draw near to God. Put your focus on God. Move your life towards the things of God, and God will move toward you. It's an active movement of our hearts towards a living God. I choose to align myself with the things of God. I choose to remember all that God has done and all that God promises to do. Imagine if Asa had just stopped and said, Wait a minute. Remember that last time? Wait a minute. Remember how God showed up? We had no chance of winning that battle, and God showed up on our behalf. He forgot. And we're all guilty at times of forgetting, but a heart aligned with God is, is a heart that remembers all that God has done and all that God has promised to do in your life. That's a heart that's fully devoted. The second question is, is how does this happen? How do we have hearts more devoted to God? How do we foster fully devoted hearts? And I think we've kind of been dancing around it, but I want to be a little more direct. Simply put, this happens when you surrender your will to his will. It happens when you're intentional about remembering all that God has done in your life. It happens when you're willing to say to God, not my way, God, but your way. It happens when you're purposeful of living into the words of Jesus in Matthew 6. So grab your Bible still, turn to Matthew chapter 6. I want to show you just a few things from the famous Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 6. I'll give you a second to find it. Matthew chapter 6, so the first gospel. And I'm going to read verse 33, but stay in there because we're going to read a few other verses. These are the words of Jesus. And in verse 33, he says to the people, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We've got to remember, Jesus is talking to the poor. He's talking to the oppressed. He's talking to the, to the peasant population in this, in this ancient world. And and, and what is he telling him? What, is, what are all these things? So in verse 19, he says, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust can destroy, and where thieves can break in and steal. Interesting fact, the words um, store up and the word treasure have the same root word that we get the word treasure from. So you could translate this, don't treasure your treasures. He's saying don't put your, your faith in what you have. Don't think that what you have is going to get you out of any of your situations. Be careful not to treasure your possessions is what he's saying there. Verse 25, he says, Don't worry about life, what you will eat or drink, about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Verse 31, he says, Don't worry, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink, what shall we wear? For pagans run after all of these things. And your heavenly Father, he knows what you need. It's hard for us to fathom how hard it would have been to hear these words of God in this culture and this time. We're talking to these poor people who live in deplorable conditions. Disease is rampant. Water conditions are terrible. There's probably open sewage running through the, the city. It's a, it's a horrible living conditions. And to be worse, when you were poor in that community, you were oppressed by the Romans. 
You were oppressed by the religious authorities, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and you were oppressed by the wealthy Jewish community. So to be poor was to be oppressed on all sides, to have nothing. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about your stuff. Look, it's hard to not worry about stuff when you don't have any. Right? It's hard not to worry about how am I going to eat. That's what he's saying. Don't worry about it. It's it's hard when you really are worried about what am I going to where so we can read this and it's kind of cute but if you place yourself in their position and you hear the words of of jesus you think these are hard words that he's saying don't worry about any of these things and and here's the deal he's not saying you don't need those this is not a he's not promoting poverty he's not saying poverty is a good thing as a matter of fact he says if you put your focus on the right thing if your heart is fully devoted to me if you seek my kingdom and my righteousness all these things will be given to you. It's about what are you spending your energy? What are you spending your time? What are you spending your desires on? And there's this beautiful picture that says, if you put your focus in the right spot, it's almost like another way of saying the eyes of the Lord seek throughout the whole earth, trying to find those who are fully devoted so he can show himself strong. And then Jesus says, if you just seek my kingdom, if you just seek my righteousness, all this other stuff, it's going to be given to you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm a father that loves you. It's about your priorities, not your poverty. Hard words for a group of people. He says, seek my kingdom. He says, seek the kingdom of God. And this is so important because it's very easy for us to slip into our own kingdom. King Asa, he started to build his own kingdom. He wasn't really even thinking about the things of God. This is a big struggle for me. So I've, I've been here in this position for the last couple of years. It's been the most fun and the most rewarding thing I've ever done to be um, your pastor here at Grace. But I have to tell you, I have to remind myself all the time that I am not building my kingdom. That this really isn't about me. So here's a little confession. When I stand on the stage and I say to you, look, we're planting a church in Midtown, and then you all clap. Hey, we're planting a church in Midtown. Yeah, it's a cool thing. It's awesome. I love that we're doing this with these five other churches, and I just love what God's doing through all that. And I say to you, and you've all heard these words probably if you've been here for a while, look, if God is stirring you in you to go to, to Detroit Church in Midtown, we want to bless you, and we want to send you. We want to affirm it's a good thing. We want you to know we are blessing you to go, and I mean it. And then you come in my office, and you say, I think I'm supposed to go to Midtown. And I think to myself, or I say to you, that's great, but inside I'm like, no, you can't go, not you, who's gonna, who's gonna take care of what you take care of, who's gonna do, I need you here, I need, I, I, I need you here, right, and God says, well, you're building your kingdom, or is this about the kingdom, we have to be a people that send people to do what they're called to do, no matter how hard for it, it's lost for us. Some of the people who have expressed a desire to go are playing an integral role in who we are, and it's hard to send them, but that's what it's about, to, to be kingdom-minded. We as a church, we as a leadership group, we have to be mindful of the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God, not your kingdom, not what you want, but what is the kingdom of God. A heart that is fully devoted to God. How does it happen? It happens when we seek his kingdom, and it happens when we seek his righteousness. His righteousness. Why does it say his righteousness? What is his righteousness? So what's our mission statement here at Grace? I'm going to give you one shot this time. Our mission statement here at Grace is we are... 
Oh, we're getting better and better every week at that. We are a mosaic striving to live like Jesus. Seeking his righteousness is synonymous with striving to live like Jesus. To live like Jesus is to seek his righteousness. But the question we got to ask ourselves is why does it say seek his righteousness and not seek your righteousness? Doesn't it seem like that would make more sense? Seek the kingdom of God and seek your righteousness. Well, the problem is that we have to understand the theological fact. When you said yes to Jesus, if you have said, God, I am a sinner and I need Jesus in my life, would you take the reins? Would you be the one to lead my life? When you give your life over to Jesus Christ, at that moment, don't miss this, you become righteous. At that moment, you are in right standing with God. But the journey begins to live into the righteousness that is imputed to you through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. So you are seen as righteous through the blood of Christ. And then the question is, are you now living like you're righteous? So we are to seek his righteousness that has been given to us. Our life as followers of Jesus is about this journey of congruency, of living into the gift of righteousness that's given to us. As you become sons and daughters of the Most High, and now we need to learn to live like it, to act like it, to live the royal way. We live into his righteousness. I want to clarify this because this is huge theological truth. We are not working to be righteous. When you say yes to Jesus, you are righteous. God has made you righteous, and now you are a part of a journey of seeking to live into the righteousness that's given to you. Jesus articulates the primary objective for a follower of, of God is to seek the kingdom, to seek his righteousness to be people whose hearts are fully devoted to kingdom things and to righteousness. Okay, I want to step back from what I'm teaching for just a minute, and I just want to talk about a, 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 a tension, if you will, that I'm struggling with. So as I teach the six essentials, let's put the six essentials on the screen. Um, as I teach this, as I present this to the um, new member class as I talk about it, my fear is that you will look at this and that you will see a lot of busy work. That you will say to yourself, well, okay, if I just do these things, then I'm going to grow spiritually. And the truth is there is this tension in our lives between being and doing. And how do we balance that tension? Because what we've already said, and I want you to hear from me, is you cannot grow spiritually if you're doing it on your own. You can do all of the six essentials and not grow spiritually if, not, if you haven't invited the Spirit of God into the process. There is this tension that we have to live in between being and doing. But can I tell you, it's both of those. God is going to initiate. So I say this all the time. The, the movement of God in your life always, always, always starts with an invitation. But what does the word invitation imply? That you can say no. It's an invitation. The movement of God in your life always starts with an invitation. The question is, how are you going to respond to the invitations that the Spirit of God is giving you? And I can tell you the invitations are daily. 
God is at work in your life. God is calling you to. God is whispering in your ear. That's why last week was so important to hear and obey. But it's, but it's this being and doing, this balance, this tension between. We have to be able to balance both. Look, I cannot deliver a sermon to you that has any power at all without the Spirit of God in it. But God still tells me to go in my office and shut the door and prepare. I have to balance doing and being in order to be a preacher. The same is true for you. God is going to call you. You have to show up. The Apostle Paul says you got to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say you have to work for your salvation. You already have that. Now he says, no, work it out. Become righteous. Become more and more and more like God. And you do that by balancing the being and the doing, allowing the Spirit of God to initiate the Spirit of God to initiate, the Spirit of God to initiate, the Spirit of God to initiate, and then you moving in the appropriate way to those initiations. So none of this works without the Spirit of God. So when you walk in the door on Sunday morning, ask Him. Say, God, would you use this service, whatever it is, would you just use it to, to speak to me, to initiate whatever you want in my life? Can I tell you, church will be better. At that moment, church will be better. When you surrender yourself to hear the word, and you know what? It may be nothing I said. It may be nothing Norflet's saying, John's saying. It may be something somebody says in the lobby to you that changes your life. But when you posture yourself in a place to let God, the initiator, do the work that he wants to do in your life, then things are going to happen for you. Here's what you need to know. The God of the universe, the one who created all things, the God who loves you beyond your ability to even understand. He says, I want to show up strong in your life. Don't you need that? Don't you need God to show up strong in your life? Isn't that like a, a wonderful invitation? I, the God of the universe who created everything with just a word, I want to show up personally and powerfully in your life. Would you devote your life to me? Would you have hearts fully devoted to me? Would you seek my kingdom? Would you seek my righteousness so that I can show up strong on your behalf? Are you willing to give God control in your life? Second Chronicles 16.9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose hearts are blameless, righteous, fully devoted, fully committed, toward him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for the people in the room today who have never said yes to you, who have never recognized their need for Jesus in their lives. I pray today that they would put their trust in you, that they would just say this prayer, Lord, I, I cannot do this anymore on my own. I need you to save me from myself. I need you to save me from my sins. I accept that Jesus really is who he said he was. I accept that he died on the cross and he rose for me. Lord, would you be Lord of my life? I accept Jesus as my Savior. Lord, I pray that people in the room right now that don't know you would just pray that prayer in their own words, in their own quietness of their heart. They would surrender their lives to you. And Lord, I pray for the people in the room who know, like King Asa, they have taken matters into their own hands and they have created chaos all around them. I pray that they would just fall back to you and say, I want to have a heart that's fully devoted to you. I want to walk seeking your righteousness, seeking your kingdom. 
Lord, help us to come back to you over and over and over. Help us to cling to you. Help us to draw near to you because you promised to draw near to us. Lord, thanks for the power of your spirit that's alive in us. Help us to live into the calling that you've placed on each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great Sunday. We'll see you at the movies. If you're not going to use your tickets, we'd love for you to drop them off. God bless you.